0: Welcome to Dungeons & Drama Nerds. I'm Nick, here with Todd. Hello. And Percy. Hi. We're here to kick off our Brindlewood Bay campaign by explaining how to play and chatting about the things that most excite us about this system.
1: Uh, so a good place to start is what what is this game? What is Brindlewood Bay? Um, from the handbook, uh, Brindlewood Bay is a role-playing game about a group of elderly women, members of the local Murder Mavens Mystery Book Club, who find themselves solving actual murder mysteries in their quaint New England town. They become aware of a dark occult conspiracy connecting the murders and will eventually have to defeat that dark conspiracy to save their community. It is a Powered by the Apocalypse game and games derived from this system are carved from Brindlewood. Uh, The game takes inspiration from Murder, She Wrote, the cosmic horror genre, and cozy crime dramas. Uh, It is set in a small coastal town in Massachusetts that has become a tourist destination. Although it has a history, I believe, of like being very important to the whaling industry, which is very Massachusetts.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, very massive. Well, we'll get to the other the the other influence on it shortly.
2: Uh, the characters, the players, are members of the Murder Mavens, a mystery book club who are especially fond of the Golden Crown Mysteries series by Robin Masterson featuring the detective Amanda Delacorte. Um, and I love all of those names. Uh, they're just great. The the players are all elderly women who are widowed and whose children live elsewhere, enjoying their golden years in Brindlewood Bay. They are also amateur detectives who have helped with many high-profile crimes before play begins, much to the chagrin of the local police. Uh, There's also a bunch of townsfolk that Jason Cordova um, has put into the book. He adds a bunch of fun little character sketches for suspects and recurring characters about town for the Mavens to encounter. And then additionally, um, the players will eventually meet the Midwives of the Fragrant Void, a dark cult dedicated to bringing forth the Children of Persephone, monstrosities that will usher in the end of all things. As the game progresses, the Mavens will uncover more and more about the Midwives and the occult conspiracies at work in Brindlewood Bay.
0: And this is the part I was going to say, I feel like the Wailing Town thing feels particularly H.P. Lovecraft, who is the other big influence on this, although I think Fragrant Void is a phrase far more disturbing than anything Lovecraft ever Lovecrafted.
1: I don't have Uh, words for how much I hate the phrase Fragrant Void. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of of Yannick, though.
0: It oh, oh very, it's, I feel like it's very onic yeah. yes no that's that's the point I think <laughs> um, I also wanted to say we were talking earlier about whether the setting whether we've changed the setting at all and I don't believe our players have however I realized I should say one small tweak is that not all of uh, the mavens in our particular game of Brindlewood they are widowed per se all of them are alone um, some of them have husbands who have. Who, are, who they're divorced from or separated from, um, but not all of them are necessarily definitely dead. <laughs> Just wanted to throw that out because that is a small tweak to the sort of assumed setup. As far as how the game is actually played, uh, the Mavens each have five attributes uh, that can have a modifier ranging from negative three to positive three. Uh, those attributes are vitality, Which is basically the catch-all physical attribute that covers strength, dexterity, endurance, athleticism, anything like that Composure, which covers anything that requires a steady hand, a calm disposition, or intense concentration Composure is also sometimes used to avoid a fear-based reaction Like if an eldritch horror suddenly jumps out at you The keeper might have a maven roll with composure to see how well They resist uh, the fight or flight impulse. Uh, The third attribute is reason, which involves studying books, researching a problem, uh, anything involving kind of mental intellectual tasks like examining crime scenes. Then we have presence, uh, which is sort of equivalent to the idea of charisma, involves charming or intimidating someone or capturing someone's imagination. And last, the most intriguing one, sensitivity, which involves occult or supernatural forces. Uh, And this is obviously a kind of special one. And an interesting piece of sensitivity is that the Keeper can always call for a role that might normally fall under another ability to be a sensitivity role if there's some occult or supernatural stuff going on. So, for example... Uh, Attempting to decode a book of, uh, you know, an eldritch tome that's written in a forgotten language dedicated to a a child of Persephone might involve sensitivity, even though, you know, sort of deciphering things might ordinarily be reason, something like that. When you're actually resolving a move or attempting to do something, uh, as this is a Powered by the Apocalypse game, it keeps the same structure that most PBTA games do. You're going to roll 2d6 and then add the relevant ability modifier. Uh, There are four bands for success and failure in Brindlewood Bay. Generally those are a miss, which is six or less, Uh, a 7 to 9 gives you some sort of qualified success, a 10 to 11 will give you a full success, and then a 12-plus often gives you a success with some kind of, uh, some kind of bonus or additional uh, reward. You can get advantage or disadvantage, which in this case means rolling three dice and keeping the two highest for advantage or lowest for disadvantage, um, from using a special move or using an item from your cozy little place, which we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, disadvantage might come from a condition. So for example, if you are already uh, frightened, or I believe that one that comes up early in our Brindlewood arc is flustered, that might impose disadvantage on relevant roles. Uh, And having both advantage and disadvantage cancel each other out and they don't stack. So it's a sort of binary state. You can have advantage, you can have disadvantage. If you have both, you have nothing and you don't get, like, advantage twice or anything like that. The last sort of move you can uh, make to influence your dice rolls is what's called putting on a crown, uh, which means that after the outcome of a die has been narrated, so after you've rolled and the keeper has told you what uh, will happen because of that roll, a maven can put on a crown and increase the result by one success tier. So, for example, if you've got an eight which falls in that seven to nine range you could put on a crown to bump that up to a 10 or i guess i should say bump it up from the mixed success to the full success we'll talk in more detail about how crowns work in a little bit because they are super interesting and super exciting narrative tools
1: yeah Um, so most of the context in which a keeper might call for a dice roll has to do with triggering a move, which is common to most, if not all PBTA games. Um, we're just going to go through what the basic sort of moves in Brindlewood Bay are beginning with the two most common moves that will be triggered, which are the day move and the night move. Um, both of these uh, are triggered when you do something risky or face something you fear during the day, uh, and they prompt the player to name what they are afraid will happen if they fail or lose their nerve. Um, the thing that distinguishes the day move from the night move uh, is, the t- is the time of day in which they take place. Um, in Brindlewood Bay, nighttime is more dangerous, and the night move has more perilous outcomes if you fail your role than the day move, even though functionally they're very similar but the game really encourages the keeper to be really on top of triggering those moves uh, so that players, um, whenever players are facing something that they might be afraid of or doing something that is dangerous. Um, the next sort of basic move uh, that you can do in Brindlewood Bay is the meddling move, um, which is but your sort of generic mystery solving move. If you're searching for a clue, conducting research, gathering information, uh, you sort of decide what the relevant stat for what exactly you're trying to do is. Um, This is the move uh, through which you turn up clues to whatever mystery you're trying to solve. Uh, The next move is the cozy move, um, which if you listen to our Thirsty Sword Lesbians campaign is sort of similar to the emotional support move. Um, It is Engaging in some kind of intimate moment with another maven while one of them is engaged in their chosen cozy activity, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, But this is a way to let you clear conditions. Um, And if you are the one engaging in your cozy activity, you might stumble upon a clue relevant to the active mystery while you're doing it. Um, And then one of the cooler basic moves uh, is that once per mystery per group, Um, You can initiate the gold crown mysteries move prompted by saying, this reminds me of something that happened to Amanda Delacorte. Uh, And then you invent a specific gold crown mystery book that it comes from and how Amanda Delacorte solved the problem. And this gives you an automatic 12 plus to a single relevant role, or you as the player are allowed to tell the keeper a fact that they must then incorporate into the situation.
0: I really love this move, particularly because of the way it lets the group kind of build a continually expanding canon of, I have to imagine, more and more ridiculous. Certainly, that's how it would be at my tables, more and more ridiculous uh, Amanda Delacorte adventures over the course of the whole campaign. And I will make a brief uh, plug here. If you would like to hear uh, our wonderful keeper, Meeks, commit wholeheartedly to the idea that Amanda Delcourt was great in an entirely made-up novel, you should subscribe to our Patreon and listen to Session Zero, where they collectively invent one of these novels.
2: I think what's really interesting about this move um, is it harkens to this feeling that Jason Cordova, the writer, um, has that the player should be more like a writing room than like a simulationist role-playing sort of situation. Um, He expects that there will be, you know, some distance between the players and the characters. Um, While I'm sure he would love to have a table of old ladies playing out their Murder Maven best lives, he doesn't expect that that's what's happening here. And so in this remove, he wants you to think about, like, what would be interesting for the characters? What would be fun for the story? Um, As opposed to, like, what does my character feel or want in this moment, necessarily? Um, And I think this... Uh, gold crown mysteries move is like fully that thing like let's just take a pause here spitball have some fun and then come back to this scene once we've invented something we feel great about
1: yeah particularly particularly given that it's like a one a one-time use per mystery i would imagine you are encouraged as the group to like sort of decide together like oh I think this is a good time to use this move as opposed to one person being like, I really wanted to leap through the window (laughs) (laughs) and I don't want to fail that role. Um, Um, Moving on, we have the occult
2: move, uh, which is a new and special move that kind of, again, in this writer's room sort of situation, um, occurs when a maven engages in an activity relating to the supernatural or the occult for the first time. Depending on how the maven rolls, this can allow them to create a new move that if successful, all mavens can use for the rest of the game. But it also involves some risk that if there's failure, um, the maven will be pushed closer to retirement, or it could make it so that the attempted activity is something the mavens can never do. Um, which I think is really interesting in this, like, risk-reward situation. It's a very high-stakes move of, like, build something new and cool or ruin it forever. The choice is yours. And then the the next big move that comes with each mystery that the Mavens play together is the theorize move. Um, this is after the Mavens have collected some clues and decide that they want to take a crack at figuring out who. Um, the villain is, who did the murder, who's doing the crime. Um, they get to have an open, freewheeling discussion about the solution to a mystery um, that is equal Ooh. They get to have an open, freewheeling discussion about the solution to a mystery once they have clues equal to half the mystery's complexity, a number that represents the length and difficulty of the mystery, and then they reach a consensus. Once they've done that someone in the group it doesn't matter who will roll plus the number of clues that they've incorporated into the theory or explained away and then subtract the mystery's complexity um, and that'll give them their like solve state like did they beat that did they not beat that where does it fall um this cannot be rolled with advantage or disadvantage and it's not subject to the effects of other moves and it can only be increased by putting on a crown if every single maven does that which is kind of risky um but it allows for some interesting uh moments um for instance jason cordova the writer he's like if people fail on a theorized move my favorite thing to do because there is no solution like the solution is whatever the players think is great and then roll and something that like hopefully fits with the clues that are there um, but Jason Cordova's favorite thing to do if, uh, the theory is wrong is to kill the suspect that they just theorized about. So like, not only were they wrong, they're dead wrong because that isn't even a possibility anymore. Uh,
0: and I think that's fascinating. I think, I feel like that's a very classic, like Miss Marpley, uh, move too. I feel like I've seen that in multiple elderly women solving crime narratives of like, ah, we think we figured it out. Nope, he's dead. Shit.
1: Mm -hmm. Another thing that I think contributes to this writer's room vibe of the game in general is that um, Cordova encourages the Keeper to participate in this conversation, particularly to sort of like, oh, well, what about how do you explain this? What about this clue? you know, like really like poking at the player's theories about what's going on and really being a participant in that conversation, as opposed to, I think, the way that we tend to think about the GM figure who is sort of like, I have all the answers and I'm sitting behind my little screen watching you make plans and laughing because I know what's right and, and you're and you're on the wrong track um, instead, because there is no right answer. Um, the keeper is allowed to sort of be a part of that conversation in a way that I think is really exciting.
0: This feels almost like pu- like puzzles and riddles are a big source of debate in like D20 games like Dungeons and Dragons because they rely not on your character skills like every literally every other thing in the game but on the player skills and there is a I know there's a a school of thought that's like you should introduce a if you want to introduce a riddle introduce really open-ended riddles and then just Say they've solved it when your party comes up with like a creative solution that feels clever, like to them. Just be like, yes, that was it. This feels like that school of thought extended into like its brilliant logical conclusion and sort of makes me never want to run a mystery in the like traditional big scare quotes way where I know what the answer is and am trying to get people to figure it out again because I just love the kind of cooperative open-ended aspect of it.
1: Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's very hard to accomplish. I think anyone who's DM's D&D understands how impossible and annoying and frustrating it is to like wait for people to stumble upon your exact train of thought that you <laughs> um that you that you came up with. Um and even I think like Cordova writes about like this game springing in part from like his frustration with how badly done most mystery games are because they're so like dependent on some, on the players, like figuring out the exact sequence of events that somebody came up with in advance, as opposed to like making connections on their own.
2: Well, and one of the things he talks about is that like mystery books and TV shows have perspective. Um, Like there is a single conscious narrator that is telling um the the detective the reader etc all of the pertinent details and then it's their job to figure it out um but in a tabletop game like one if those things are locked behind skill checks or if you the narrator as gm are like trying not to make it too simple you're intentionally trying to like obfuscate some of the clues which i think is one of the things that happens with like Riddles and puzzles that makes them really hard because it's not I'm giving you a Rubik's Cube to solve it's I'm trying to describe a Rubik's Cube in such a way that you won't immediately know It's a Rubik's Cube um, So that you don't solve it immediately because that won't be fun either Um, And I think that that's what makes those things tricky. But what I really love about this system. Yeah moving right along Each of the Mavens also gets to select a unique Maven move. Um, These come from two sets of moves that Jason Cordova has put together. Uh, The classic set is largely named after and inspired by male detective characters in American TV shows from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, For me, I was an X-Files kid, so there's something really nice about the Mulder one. you get informants but they're always like cloaked in shadow until you've gotten a couple layers deep in the void mystery um and in the final mystery you like finally figure out who your informant is and you're able to have actual scenes with them instead of these like weird hazy memories where you're given a clue but you like don't know what happened
1: Um, I really like the Scarecrow move. It's very cool and mysterious and inspires sort of creativity in a way that's exciting to me. It also is very suited to like, if I were to play this game, what my play style would be basically at the beginning of each session, a stranger presses something into your hand or leaves something in a place where you find it. um, And the keeper tells you what it is and it functions as a clue, but it's not attached to a particular mystery. Um, You can use it in the mystery you're solving right now or save it in the future. Um, So it's sort of a a clue that you can hang on to and find a way to creatively incorporate later on. I I will say I did not watch much detective
0: TV growing up. So I looked over this list and was like, I literally don't know who almost any of these people are. Um, But my favorite move is the Thomas Magnum move, because as I've said, I love the kind of world-building writer's room aspect of this, and Thomas Magnum move says, you are a secret personal friend of Robin Masterson, the mysterious author of The Gold Crown Mysteries. And what this gives you is that anytime you are not in Brindlewood Bay... Uh, you have access to Robin's like, financial resources and vehicles and that sort of thing, and it also gives you a special benefit. Um, we mentioned earlier that there are sort of two alternate outcomes for the Gold Crown mystery moves. Um, And with the Thomas Magnum special ability, instead of having to choose one of those, you get both. So it really strongly incentivizes the group to be like, yes, we're going to do that gold crown mysteries. This is just like what happened to Amanda Delacorte uh, every time we play because you get so much more mileage out of it.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, And then the alternate set of moves are inspired by characters from mystery books. Um, In that, I went with Tintin. Um, you get a, a dog companion that seems to be able to like understand everything you say and then later uh, can talk um, and as Jason Cordova said like pick this because talking dog um, in the book and I would want a
1: talking dog I I respect that as a person who just played a game in <laughs> which I had a dog. Um. I, my favorite of the alternate moves is Nancy Drew because I was a Nancy Drew girly when I was growing up. I loved the Nancy Drew games. Um, uh, this move is basically like the games, not the books. I mean, I liked the books, but I really, really loved the computer games. Um, there I'm are these, aware of those. there are these very weird, um, computer games where you solve mysteries, but sometimes, um, for some reason you like are in a position where you have to pull a pipe wrench off of something in like a restaurant and then the restaurant blows up and it was very scary anyway.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> A friend of mine has recently been playing through all of the Nancy
1: Drew games. They're, so they're really scary, actually. <laughs> um, anyway. I, I, I need to check these out, clearly. <laughs> they're like quintessential like early 2000s computer games. Um, anyway, uh, the Nancy Drew move in Brindlewood Bay um, is basically like you... Uh, Robin Masterson has actually not been writing gold crown mysteries for years and you are one of many secret ghost writers of the books. Um, so as long as you keep the secret, mavens always get both benefits of the gold crown mysteries move instead of having to choose. But, um, if you, if you ever reveal the secret, you get a second use of the move during the mystery in which you reveal it, but, uh, you take the condition marked by the Robin Masterson network and you no longer have access to the move after that point which is an interesting trade-off and another sort of example of how like the canon the the sort of diegetic canon of like the gold crown mysteries books um can function in this game depending on what different groups do with it
0: my favorite from the alternate set of maven moves is one of the simplest but like dear dear to my heart which is the encyclopedia brown move um Which, A, I like because I read a shit ton of Encyclopedia Brown books when I was a kid. Um, But B, I like because for those who don't know Encyclopedia Brown, he's a teenage detective who always, scare quotes, detective, um, who solves all the crimes at his school and stuff by his encyclopedic knowledge of random bullshit. Um, And with the Encyclopedia Brown move, once per mystery, you get to introduce a piece of real-world trivia about something in a scene, and that fact of trivia is a clue. Like, you just get to be like, ah, yes, the, you know, I I, I don't know what. uh, Pillowcases were invented by, uh, you know, the, the Spanish in the 13th century because of, a lice problem, and that is a clue. Now, somehow that will be incorporated into the in, into the final solution to the to the mystery. And I just love that. And as somebody who often is like quietly googling things during tabletop role playing game sessions, I feel like I could get a lot of mileage out of that move. Um,
2: finally, there is a section of moves called custom moves. Um, these are niche things related to something specific uh, that might be specific to a certain mystery so maybe it's the the mavens are lost at sea on a derelict lobster boat and one of them needs to pilot at home and maybe you like create a move for that um this also includes uh moves created from the occult move um or a dramatic one-time action um so there's kind of like a catch-all to build things um so that you don't have to just say like these are the only mechanics in the game um, and it allows you to build things that seem fair and useful to what you're doing.
1: Something that I think is something that I think is helpful that Cordova puts in the book is like because I think a lot of times in games when you have these lists of moves, it's like you have no idea like what are your bread and butter moves and what are the things that like you probably won't use a lot. And he writes, um, like, your basic moves are 75% of what you're going to do, and a lot of those are going to be day moves or night moves, and then 20% is Maven moves, and then 5% is custom moves. So you use them very, very rarely in comparison to everything else, which I feel like is so helpful as a player to be like, oh, okay, I I sort of understand what I should pay the most attention to um, and what I should be looking out to use while we're playing.
0: I do feel like Cordova does a very good job of front loading, like, uh, of being like, I want everyone to understand what is actually important in practically speaking in this game, and what is not, and it's not all of equal weight. <laughs> Um, so that covers the moves to talk a little bit about character generation. Um, let's talk about the mavens. So Brindlewood Bay is a little bit unusual in the powered by the apocalypse movement, sweet genre genealogy in that it doesn't actually have playbooks the way that say thirsty sword lesbians or apocalypse world does. Instead, the mavens are distinguished mechanically from each other by their maven moves, which are uh, usually unique. I think there's one or two that say multiple mavens can have them, but generally those are unique um and they're distinguished by their cozy activity, uh which is a hobby or pastime that every maven pursues in their downtime other than the book clubs. that could be knitting, uh quilting, gardening, um, Printmaking, anything you can think of, pretty much—that's uh, some like quiet recreational activity they do in their spare time. Uh, th- when you when you're in actual play, uh, you can advance just like you would in most games with playbooks by marking experience using these end of session questions. Uh, and occasionally you'll advance when a move tells you to. One of the things that is interesting about Brindlewood Bay is that, well, in other games, again, I'm going to keep referring back to Thirsty Sword Lesbians because we just played it, uh, in other games, your playbook might tell you these are two of your questions uh, to ask at the end of every session. Is like, did I do X? Uh, And if you say yes, you get experience. In Brindlewood Bay, there's a list of questions that you get to pick two from for each session. And these are questions like, did you act like a woman half your age? Or did you... uh, I don't remember the exact wording, but basically like, did you uh, defy the authorities of the town or the law? Um, And you can pick two every session, but swap them out each session. So this is a really interesting tool to me because it lets you focus a little bit on what you want to do in a particular session and communicate that to the keeper and to your fellow players maybe one session you want to explore being like a little flirty and a little risk taking and a little dangerous and then another session you're like no this time I want to focus on the cozy like solitary aspects of my maven um and I think that's a really neat way to give this this character which is more loosely structured than in a lot of TTRPGs um some flexibility and a level of specificity in any individual moment. Um, This game also has conditions. These are traits that cause you to make die rolls at disadvantage if they would plausibly hinder a maven during an action. Uh, These can be very, very broad. Um, They're basically up to the players and the keeper to define. So. Traits could be anything from physical injury like a broken arm to emotional or psychological states such as flustered or ashamed uh, or supernatural things like the marked by. Well, this might not technically be supernatural, but I bet it would be the marked by the Robin Masterson network uh, condition that Percy mentioned earlier. Um, Again, you take disadvantage Uh, on a roll if the condition seems like it would impact it, and you can have up to three conditions. If you would take a fourth condition, instead, you mark one of your crowns. So what are the crowns? There are two crowns in the game, and putting on a crown increases the result of a roll by one success tier, like we said earlier. Uh, One of the interesting things about this is that you do this after the result has already been narr- narrated. This prompts the narration of a different result, and what was previously narrated didn't occur, which means that you are essentially generating what might be alternative timelines or a like flash of... Possible consequences in the Maven's mind as they're staring down the barrel of whatever is coming their way But by putting on a crown they can spare themselves from those consequences
2: I really enjoy this um, Jason Cordova talks about like Why do we narrate the bad result if someone's just gonna put on a crown and a lot of this? Uh, talks about like leaning into the fear and the horror Um, Both of this genre that we're in but also these bad dice rolls and to like remind the players that there are stakes for their characters It is assumed they will probably get away scot-free most of the time the way that Jessica Fletcher does But making that danger more real by playing out Oh, your maven just got pushed off a cliff or oh that black gloved hand reached out from behind you and pulled you into the shadows Um, And that was the last we heard of Beatrice or whatever. Like that allows us to really live with the life or death stakes that these women are going through while also having this like cozy mystery fun time. Um, And I think striking that balance is really important.
0: Yeah. And one of the other balances that's interesting here is like I said, there's two crowns, the crown of the queen and the crown of the void. And you can mark either and get mostly the same results but the crown of the queen explores ideas of your maven as a woman so these might include flashbacks to her life as a partner mother a sister or present-day scenes involving her being romantic or sexual or having a complicated inner life Um, and there are seven boxes you can mark to put on the crown of the queen and you get to mark them in any order you like and they give you when you check them they give you instructions to describe a brief scene or flashback that focuses on one of those aspects. The Crown of the Void, on the other hand, represents your maven getting closer and closer to the dark conspiracy that surrounds Brindlewood Bay. Not closer to uncovering it, but closer to sort of making contact and being lost to the void. There are only five of these, and they are marked sequentially in a sort of escalating pattern as your maven gets sort of closer and closer to the darkness. Um, And if you ever mark the fifth box on there, uh, your maven will have to retire in a way that shows how they are lost to the void. So that is one of the few sort of hard-coded ways to, I don't know if die is the right word, but like for a character to be uh, sent into retirement by this is to fill up that crown of the void checklist. The last major character element uh, in this game is your cozy little place. Uh, This is generally the Maven's home that holds interesting and distinctive items uh, and also serves as a list of the sort of equipment that is available to them, which I think is really fun. Um, Items can be marked to get advantage on a die roll associated with their use, but each item can only be used to get advantage one time. Uh, And something that I think is also really fun about the way this game is set up uh, is that during character creation, the players populate each other's cozy little places. Uh, You know, if I were playing, uh, every other player at the table would say one item that is in my cozy little place.
1: Uh, Yeah. So switching gears a little bit from playing as a maven to playing as the keeper, um, I think the way that... Uh, Cordova supports the keeper in the uh, in the handbook of this game is really, really a good blueprint for for how one might do so when writing a TTRPG. Um, some of the big like guidelines for the keeper in playing the game are that clues can be found wherever the mavens are looking. Um, the keeper doesn't know the explanation to any murder mystery until the players do the theorized move. Um, and that the murders are part of a larger conspiracy involving a death cult determined to summon a monstrosity from the depths of the ocean. Very simple, light, breezy stuff. Um, (laughs) Some of the reactions that a Keeper can have to something that the players are doing in the game include um, separate the mavens, kill a suspect, which is clearly, as as Todd mentioned, one of Cordova's favorites, uh, inflict a condition, put a maven in danger, show a maven being killed, um, which I'll pause on to note, In the handbook, he's really clear about like, because players always have the option to put on a crown uh, and sort of like, you know, switch gears from what is happening. They can always, they always have the option to turn their failure into a success and avoid whatever it is that you had narrated. He's sort of like, you know, maybe don't make that your first choice. Um, Maybe don't make that your default uh, outcome of a failed role, but don't be afraid to do things that are really drastic or really scary. To really sort of impress upon the mavens like, oh, this is a really dangerous world that we're in. So, yeah, so that might sound harsh, but uh, he has sort of an explanation for why, which is that the crowns are a really helpful sort of fail safe for avoiding really, really bad outcomes that the players don't want to have.
0: Well, and the crowns are one of, again, the like hard coded sources of risk. So if you're not pushing people to use them at least occasionally, then all the tension kind of. Tr- dribbles mm. out of the game i imagine
1: yeah Um, uh, some of the rest of the keeper reactions that he lists include uh remove an item from their cozy little place um for example if like their house gets robbed or something like that um as the as the result of a failed roll or, or something that happens um have an official show up reveal a void clue or cut to commercial which we'll talk about a little bit later because it's one of my favorite things that you can do in the game um Uh, And he emphasizes that these reactions are always followed up with the question, what do you do? And the other big thing that the Keeper is managing, in part because they don't have the burden of plotting out the solutions to the mysteries that they're presenting to the group, they're in charge of managing the void mystery, which the Keeper always writes, as opposed to using... Like, you always have the option to write your own mysteries for this game, but there are tons of published mysteries that you can incorporate into your home game at Brindlewood Bay. Um, but the Keeper always writes their own void mystery based on what has been uncovered by the players. In addition to the sort of standard mysteries that the murder mavens are encountering, the Keeper drops clues and schemes about the void mystery, and they end up sort of accumulating more and more things that they can pull on, particularly as the mavens become aware of this mystery, um, but one of the things that you're always doing as the Keeper is sort of plotting out how close are we to un- like uncovering what's going on with the midwives of the Fragrant Void. Jason
2: Cordova lays out a typical session um, for what everything after your first session would look like. Um, a lot of this is very in the style of like TV that uh, PBTA games like to use as a framework. Um, so you start with a recap. Where does the current mystery stand? What clues have been found and what void clues? What conditions do each maven have marked? Um, You resolve any cliffhangers from last time, if you have any, and then you start with the beginning of session, resolving any beginning of session moves and marking new end of session questions. Um, Following that, we get some cozy vignettes with each of the mavens, um, showing them enjoying their life in Brindlewood Bay. These should be light and warm helping with a community project, enjoying her hobbies, working around her home, et cetera. Uh, Then the keeper presents a new mystery. The investigation begins. They pursue any leads, play out downtime scenes. Um, And then over the course of play, if people put on crowns, um, they're encouraged to play out these scenes whenever feels appropriate, but before the end of session. Um, Then at the end of session, uh, you tally up your XP and then you do a debrief. Um, they recommend using the Stars and Wishes tool, which was set up by Luke Quaid. Um, and it's kind of a reframing of the pop, the popular Rose and Thorn debrief tool. Stars are things that each of the players enjoyed about the session. Characters, scenes, bits of description, something from the gameplay, anything that you like. Um, And then wishes are things that the players hope to see next time. So maybe that's like, ooh, maybe so-and-so will show up. Or I've got an idea that blah, blah, blah will happen. Um, Or like, I really want to go fishing, if that's what your maven really wants to do. Um, And these are really useful to, to inform the keeper, like, one, what were things that people were really interested in? And two, what are things that they're hoping for for next time? As a side note, Stars and Wishes is also now in Lauren Bryant Monk and Kiana Shaw's TTRPG Safety Toolkit.
0: And that's Brindlewood Bay, a small town in New England wailing supernatural eldritch horrors. Uh, So what are some of the things that we're all most excited about for our particular game?
1: Um, Something that I love in general about this game uh, is its sort of balance of cozy and spooky elements and the way that it sort of builds this tone shift into the arc of gameplay across a campaign. Um, I think just like the vibe of this game is really exciting. This sort of balance between the cozy and the Eldritch. Um, And the other thing that's sort of big picture that I really love about this game is the way that the handbook is written. Mostly that I I think Cordova gives a lot of attention to um, actually how do I support you in playing this game? Um, Particularly, Um, If you read the handbook, he explains under each Maven move why you might choose it, like choose this if you are interested in being a big part of the solutions to mysteries or choose this if you like Googling random trivia or whatever. But like if you're unfamiliar with TTRPGs or sort of having a hard time imagining how this might play into the game, I think it's really helpful to have an explanation of like, oh, here's why you might do this as opposed to there are some PBTA games that do this, but not all of them universally will sort of be like, choose this playbook if you like this, this, and this. Um, but I think it's always really helpful to have some guidance there. And he also in the keeper section of the handbook explains like, here's some advice for some of the more complicated Maven moves and how you might navigate those. Um, particularly ones that sort of call on the keeper to imagine extra things. Like there's one that uh, where the Maven has like creepy dreams that the keeper has to come up with. So I think it's really helpful to have some just straight up like, here's my advice for how you deal with some of these moves that can sort of wreck your shit if you're not prepared for it. Um, Yeah.
2: Uh, I really love the theorize move and the mystery mechanics that are built into this game. Um, I love that it's a collaborative building process and not like uh, a slow trying to figure out the exact correct solution process um i think it makes things more fun for both the keeper and the players and as i was saying earlier i think what's hard about mysteries and ttrpgs is is that in theory the party needs to be able to fail Uh, like if they are on the tail of some crime lord and they decide to go in the wrong direction entirely like Unless you're railroading, you kind of can't fix that in something like a Dungeons and Dragons or, uh, even a kids on bikes, like, no, that person's not the villain. You've shown up at the wrong house. Sorry. We can move the story forward, but like you didn't succeed in this instance. Um, and I think here it allows the players to be much more engaged in the stakes and thinking about how might these things interact. Um, And how can we tell a compelling story with them that I think gives them more of that like writer's room agency instead of like, I need to figure out the correct solution in order to get the prize. Um, And I think that that's really nice.
0: I do think there's something about the um, all of a sudden I'm thinking of Knives Out and I Mm -hmm. can only imagine that this writer's room, you know, like a really satisfying murder mystery is often so convoluted and so like multi-layered that I can imagine there's something to this like idea of collective creation and collective knowledge from a bunch of clues that you essentially generated by saying, like, I want to investigate this thing, rolling a die, and then having to be like, yes, that is a clue. Like, something about that is a clue. <laughs> and like that kind of disparate cons- constellation, I can imagine collective attention to that sort of random assemblage gets you closer to that type of solution than any sort of mystery that I at least could write myself, where I'd be like, there's like two layers of backstabbing or trail covering here, and then I'm tired and have to run this game tomorrow, so I'm done. <laughs>
1: well, I also feel like it it subverts... Like, clearly, Cordova has a deep love for this genre. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, it's very evident that he does. But I also think it subverts something that is kind of... Like, he talks a lot about the gendered sort of subversion that he's doing in the handbook. But I also think it subverts this sort of, like, related but different, um, very dominant narrative of, like, the detective as this singular, highly intelligent, better-than-you... Like I grew up when I was younger, my mom was really into the show Monk. So like that is my main uh, reference point for like mystery stories. But the whole like conceit of Monk is like, here's this guy who's super smart and every episode ends with him being like, here's what happened. And this very convoluted explanation of everything that goes on. But I think this is such an important subversion that is so community oriented and collective and like centering people that, you know, are are just like smart and cool people but it's not like you know here's this person who is unusually intelligent this brilliant mind who we simply cannot fathom how it works um yeah i i think it's just a really cool subversion of the genre yeah
0: i also really like and we've talked about this a little bit but the in a sneaky way, because the game looks so cozy, <laughs> and and uses the word cozy repeatedly about itself and things within it. Um, but this is a horror game, and like we said, Cordova uh, tells the keeper to kind of push that element of it because, and this is why I appreciate there are. Essentially kind of fail safes and safety tools built into the mechanics of the game because the players get so much agency in deciding, oh, this is like what the this is what I want the actual result of this or the consequence of this to be, especially with the crowns. It, it, it feels like a game that is really aware of the challenges of doing horror And is prepared and has come up with creative ways to deal with that in the game. Its structure itself, not just saying this is a horror game. Use safety tools like talk to each other, like do all that. Yes, but also we're going to give players some real agency to like explore the horrifying and then also like throw a switch and get to keep playing in the world that they want to play in.
1: Um, As previously mentioned, a thing that I love about this game is the cut to commercial keeper reaction that sort of is in the vein of all of the other ways that this game is sort of referential to like detective TV shows or murder mystery shows. Um, uh, Basically, this reaction is that if a maven undertakes a perilous or dramatic action that provokes a die roll and the die roll is a miss, you can say, let's cut to commercial before you narrate the outcome. And then the player of the Maven uh, gets a prompt and then they can narrate a commercial inspired by your prompt. Um, and if they do so, return to the regular scene and allow play to continue as if they had rolled a 10 or a 10 to 11. Um, so if they if for whatever reason you feel like you don't necessarily want them to have to use a crown, you can give them the opportunity to be like, oh, you know, we have this sort of cliffhangery thing and then let's cut to commercial and see what happens when we come back um which i think is really cool
0: i have to say i love this shit and i would abuse the shit out of it <laughs> if i were running a game of Brindlewood bay i would constantly be making people well not making people because they could choose not to and just take the consequences but i would I, there would be commercial breaks every like six minutes <laughs> it'd be a very like heavily uh commercially
1: oriented channel <laughs> your show would make so much money <laughs>
0: Yes, we'd be making, we, we would be raking in spo- from a really diverse and bizarre array of sponsors <laughs> as well.
2: Um, and then another thing that we're really excited about and that we're planning to do with this campaign um, is having it uh, play out over more actual play sessions. Something that really drew us to this game was not just the mystery mechanics, but the void mystery and how... Uh, The void mystery which is largely up to the keeper. There's like a couple different suggestions of what these uh, Cults of the fragrant void might actually be doing and who might actually be pulling the strings and all of these things But the fact that it gets to be revealed over time so that there are these like dark undercurrents and again trying to explain Why are there all of these murders in this quaint small New England town? Uh, Which is something that murder she wrote never answers there are so many people that die in the town of Cove, just brutally murdered every episode <laughs> and like i think one of the major questions and i think part of why cordova turns to this hp lovecraft influence as well is like how do we explain that people just keep winding up dead here um and so hinting at like there is a darker going on here there is something happening just beneath the surface I mean in some ways it feels like hot fuzz um, yes which is also like quaint cute town uh, in England um, instead of New England and murders keep racking up and then you realize like oh is there a secret organization that's killing off all of these people the town doesn't like um, and it's great. It's wonderful, Percy. You just made a face, which makes me think that you maybe haven't seen it, and you should go see Hot Fuzz. It's wonderful. Hot Fuzz
1: is an excellent movie. <laughs> I was about to ask the dumbest question about it, which is: Does it have that guy who's also in that other movie? Which I realize helps no one. Um, is that that guy from Shaun of the Dead? It sure yes. is. It, it, it's the okay. same, the same team.
0: two. Yeah, Sh- Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. It's one of their like three or four buddy movies where it's like the two of them plus every other actor in Great Britain. Mm-hmm. Noted. It's great. It's wonderful. Everyone should Wait, watch it.
1: Is Hugh Grant in it? Hugh Grant might not oh. be in that one. Well I I'm- don't
2: think Hugh Grant is in it, but there's a lot of wonderful people in
1: it. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Anyway, I'm just being a shithead carry-on. <laughs> um
2: but yeah we were we were really excited about like seeing a longer campaign and how this game works in a longer, more extended period.
0: Which which does mean that we'll be playing slightly longer sessions to try to get multiple mysteries into the podcast in a way that we can sort of build the void mystery up over a few sessions, and we'll be playing this campaign for longer than we sort of previously uh, have been running campaigns. So Uh, We will be playing Brindlewood Bay through sometime in April, um, and I am super excited to see what unfolds over that period of time and what creepy, creepy void mysteries are uncovered. I will say, a little teaser, having listened to the first session of play, there's a sort of sudden eruption of void mystery stuff at the very end that was like... Very dramatic and very exciting. So look forward to that coming out in like episode two, I would guess, of the actual play.
1: Tune in next week to hear the first episode of our campaign of Brindlewood Bay by Jason Cordova and published by The Gauntlet, featuring Christopher Dierksen as Eddie Rue Dubois, Ben Ferber as Lane Walther, Corey Flores as Baby Garcia, Shannon Wade as Doris Mikowiak, and our keeper, C. Meeker. Ooh, what a fun... (laughs) What a fun little rhyme. Um, anyway, we'll see you next week, y'all. Dungeons
0: and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percival Hornack, and Nicholas Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel-Dean. Season three features contributions from Christopher Dirksen, Ben Ferber, Corey Flores, Tess Huth, Romana Isabella, Leo Mock, John John Johnson, and Dex Vaughn. If you'd like to help us continue exploring the intersection of theater and tabletop role-playing games, consider leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice or supporting us, and getting access to our patron-only bonus content, at patreon.com slash dungeonsanddramanerds. You can find our social media and website links, including our cast bios, at the link tree in our show notes. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds.